Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 14th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Well, Melissa and I returned home about an hour and a quarter ago from our road trip of six weeks and a day. It's good to be back. I cannot begin to express my appreciation for all of the good brethren we met along the way or the two or of the degree to which we are blessed by their friendship and their fellowship. I thank everybody we met during our six-week trip and pray that we see you again soon. As for the people we missed along the way, that there were probably about half a dozen of them that we just, what well, we were in their area and just couldn't hook up a schedule as we passed or passed through each place. I, 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 um, I regret that, of course. I would have liked to have seen everybody that we communicate with that lived along our route, but it's just not possible. And we pray that we see you if we are able to make such a trip next year which I pray to Yahweh we shall. Tonight we are going to present Clifton Emmerheiser's special notice to all who deny two seed line, part 11. And, as I've been trying to do on each of these programs, I have a preface with a few comments of my own. Because of the, the many things which we profess at Christogenia, which are so vastly different from the various biblical interpretations of the denominational churches, we are constantly embroiled in conflict. And it amazes me that those who disagree with us often simply refuse to go away. Instead, they are actually hurt. They become emotionally involved. And they begin to troll us relentlessly, even to the point of spreading slander and cursing us on social media websites. If they were truly Christians, then they should forget about us, wipe the dust from their feet, and instead redirect the same zeal towards the enemies of Christ, so that we would all be better off. However, when we examine these people, it almost always becomes manifest that they have some sort of sin in their lives which they are attempting to justify. Whether it be a mamzer wife, like Jan Dupree, or mamzer grandchildren, or sometimes that even they themselves are bastards attempting to fit themselves into the Christian identity community. So long as our ministry exists, their consciences cannot rest because we stand against their sin and they are continually reminded by our presence that they themselves cannot be justified. So they are angry and attack us seeking to discredit our message. That's the way we see it. And that's usually the case when we are able to investigate. Among these matters of conflict, 
is our consistent profession of the fact that only people of the white Adamic race will see the kingdom of heaven and all others are consigned to the lake of fire at the end of the age. However, Yahshua Christ himself had said that unless a man, that unless a man should be born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of Yahweh. He is not able to see the kingdom of God, as it is recorded in John chapter 3. An examination of scripture reveals that Adam was the son of Yahweh, and that only our Adamic race is born from above, of both water and of the spirit of our God. In the Genesis account of creation, Yahweh took credit for the creation of one race only, the Adamic race, and only they are instilled with his heavenly spirit. So our enemies often claim that the other races were described as having been created as beasts in Genesis chapter 1. That is not at all true. But their dishonesty really becomes apparent when they get to the New Testament and claim that the other races, which they said were created as beasts, are now somehow men. That is universalism by the back door. While those same people who hold such a perverted view, also claim that they are not universalists. We have fully demonstrated the role of the non-Adamic races in Scripture in five segments of our Pragmatic Genesis series. I simply cannot repeat all of that here. In the end, in the last chapters of the Revelation, the city of God is described as having twelve gates, and upon those gates are written the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Nobody else will be able to enter into that city. Unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of Yahweh. He shall not see it from within, and he shall not see it from without. One is either a sheep or a goat, and by that time all of the goat nations are cast into the lake of fire. These people and others also despise us because they cannot accept that all of the sheep of Yahweh's pasture shall be saved in spite of the fact that Paul of Tarsus very bluntly asserted that all Israel shall be saved. They deny the plain word of Scripture which in many places confirms that assertion which Paul himself had made in Romans chapter 11. Now perhaps they themselves may have been harmed by someone in some grievous way and they cannot relinquish judgment to Yahweh their God. So they want to see those who hurt them be destroyed. Or perhaps they are moved by some infamously sinful individual such as a Jeffrey Dahmer or a Ted Bundy. Such people are carnally minded and they fail to see the bigger, transcendental picture of the purpose of the creation which is outlined in Scripture. So they deny that purpose, failing because they deny a large portion of Scripture and choose out only certain verses which suit their carnal desire for revenge against their own brethren.
if indeed they themselves are sheep. So these people also hate our message, and they assail us for wanting to see sinful Israelites get what they describe as a free pass into heaven. However, King David himself was a murderer, and he had, albeit indirectly, committed murder because he lusted for another man's wife. Those are two of the most grievous sins. Yet Yahweh God forgave him, and David remained a model for Yahweh's own incarnation as Yahshua Christ. Yet even David's sin was nothing in comparison to many of the sins of the ancient Israelites. If one reads through the chronicles of the Old Testament, one shall see that the ancient Israelites sacrificed their own sons and daughters to the fires of Moloch, committed fornication with the other races, rejected Yahweh for the temples of Baal, and even went so far as to eat their own children in their idolatry in the times of their punishment. However, even after all of this, Yahweh God himself said that they would get a free pass, as we read in Micah chapter 7, concerning those same ancient Israelites where it says, Who is a God like unto thee, that pardons iniquity, and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob, and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. All of the children of Israel being sinners, Yahweh God would keep the promises to Abraham by extending mercy to all of the seed of the promise, without exception. There are other implications for sin, as we read in Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, in Mark chapter 3 verse 29, in John chapter 5 verse 29, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. However, all of the children of Israel shall be saved in spite of these other implications. As Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that even when all of a man's works are burned in the fire, and he has nothing left, meaning that everything that he did in his life was useless, he himself will still be saved. One verse of scripture does not cancel out another verse, as Yahweh God is not at any time a liar. In relation to the new covenant, he said in Jeremiah chapter 33, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. So we may quip that there shall be 
no Israelite left behind. Paul of Tarsus explained this very concept at length in his epistle to the Romans that all of the sins of the children of Israel would be forgiven by the grace of Yahweh their God. Yet even Paul warned that we must not sin simply because we are going to be forgiven. So if we were not correct in our interpretation of Scripture, Paul's words would be completely irrelevant where he said in Romans chapter 6, Now what what may we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace would be greater? Certainly not. We who have died in sin, how can we still live in it? Or are you ignorant that as long as we are immersed in Christ Yahshua, into his death we are immersed? Paul said these things in response to his explanation in Romans chapter 5, that the entire Adamic race would ultimately have eternal life in Yahshua Christ. Then, a little later, in Romans chapter 6, Paul wrote, Therefore, sin shall not lord over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we commit sin, because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. In Romans chapter 3, he had already told them, Do we then nullify the law by faith? Certainly not. Rather, we establish the law we should understand that we are all sinners and seek to keep the law. We discussed this at great length in our commentary on Paul's epistle to the Romans and especially in parts 6 and 7 in that commentary. And once again, we cannot possibly explain it all here. Paul of Tarsus said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Then in Romans chapter 11 he said, from verse 26, And in that manner all of Israel shall be delivered, just as it is written, From out of Zion shall come the Deliverer, and he shall turn away impiety from Jacob. And this to them is the covenant from me, when I should remove their sins. And later in the chapter, Paul had written, Therefore Yahweh has enclosed all in disobedience, that he may show mercy to all. The Apostle John wrote in chapter 5 of his first epistle, that for whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. We overcome the world through Christ. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. There he is encouraging the children of Yahweh that they may love their brethren and be obedient to the word because they are destined to overcome the world. And what our faith is, our faith is the promises which God made to Abraham. Christ being the fulfillment of those promises, the assurance that we will have those promises. Essentially, in 1 John chapter 5, John is agreeing with Paul that as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, because whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world.
We have already seen that in Micah chapter 7 and Jeremiah chapter 33, Yahweh had promised mercy upon and to cleanse all of the sins of the children of Israel without any stated exceptions. And there are other scriptures in the prophets which state those same things. In Isaiah chapter 45, the word of Yahweh says to Israel in captivity, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have called thee by thy name, I have surnamed thee, although thou hast not known me, not knowing Yahweh. The children of Israel were caught up in all of the sins of the pagan world around them. Then later in the same chapter we read, But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. Then a little further on, it says in that same chapter, Tell me, and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? Have not I Yahweh? And there is no God else besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And that is an allegory for the scattered children of Israel. The horns of Joseph would push his people to the ends of the earth, as it is prophesied in Genesis chapter 49. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. So every Israelite will ultimately be obedient. And finally we read, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So Paul was not teaching innovations when he insisted that all Israel shall be saved. Rather, Paul was teaching the fulfillment of the promises to Israel which Yahweh made in the writings of the prophets. And that fulfillment is assured in Christ. Now which part of Jeremiah chapter 33 or Micah chapter 7 or Isaiah chapter 45 is a lie? This is the justice and mercy of God that as it says in the wisdom of Solomon that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. If man does not have eternal life, then God is not true, and God is not sovereign because he created something which fails, that he did not intend for failure, but had rather created it with the purpose of its having eternal life. So if man does not have eternal life, then we clearly see that man will be chastised, until he acts according to the will of God. Man found death when he sinned. This is the very purpose of the chastisement of Israel. If man could be discarded and replaced, Israel would have been discarded and replaced. But man was made to be eternal from the beginning 
and Yahweh God, even though man failed, Yahweh God will not fail. Or what is the point of chastisement? So we found death, but Yahweh God will deliver us from the grave. Man found death by the way of the devil, and Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. There would be no point in chastisement if Yahweh simply intended to throw away disobedient Israelites into the lake of fire. There would be no substance in mercy if only obedient Israelites were saved. But if all of the Adamic race has eternal life, then God is true and he demonstrates his sovereignty even if we must learn in our punishment. And I'm sorry, I'm still typing. I can never edit these notes enough before I present them. That we must learn in our punishment. We may see Hebrews chapter 12 verse 8 or 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 20 where Paul delivered those who betrayed him to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. We're delivered for Satan, as Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for the destruction of the flesh. That's how we learn not to blaspheme. That the spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. As we have already said, one verse of scripture does not cancel out another verse, as Yahweh God is not a liar. So, every verse of Scripture, at least as far as it can be determined to have been originally written, must be interpreted with the acceptance that every verse is true. The only exceptions are the few and demonstrable additions or corruptions of man. And there are more than one of those, even in your King James Version. A lot more may be said about sin and punishment and death and judgment. But no other scriptures conflict with what these particular scriptures which we cite here have promised us. Any perceived conflicts are due to poor translations and the errant doctrines of the denominational churches. When a white man hears that the word of God guarantees us that all white men shall be saved. He should be absolutely overjoyed that all of his brethren and kinsmen are assured eternal life in spite of their sins and their faults and in spite of their rewards or a lack of reward for the unrepentant in the kingdom of their God. When a white man hears that the other races, the bastards which have competed with his own race, for the fatness of the earth since the dawn of time, and which had been a scourge and a thorn to him throughout history, are ultimately all going to be destroyed because they can never please God. Then, he should once again be absolutely overjoyed because this is the gospel of the kingdom of his God. I am appalled by all so-called identity Christians who are not overjoyed by these things. 
and I exhort them to repent of their worldly sins and their carnal minds because it is they who have swallowed the lies of serpents. For my part, I pray to Yahweh that I never falter with this message because it is the ultimate gospel truth. These things may not have been revealed in the Old Testament. And indeed, in the Old Testament, man found death. But man found death through the devil, and Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. This is not the dispensation of the Old Testament. And with this, we shall commence with our presentation of Clifton Emmerheiser's Special Notice to All Who Deny to Seed Line, Part 11. Clifton begins. Again, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to understand the formidable enemy with whom we have to contend, that same devil, collectively. In order to fathom our present world problems, it is imperative that we grasp two things. That the white Europeans and their kin worldwide are the true racial Israelites of the Bible. And who Israel's real enemies are. To know one without the other is insufficient. To improperly identify biblical Israel's enemy is a criminal offense. For it can mean the difference between life and death to our people. Death is not always so obvious to the eye. When a white when a white person marries a member of another race, it brings on the death of the spirit which was breathed into our forefather Adam. If you are ever invited to attend a wedding of a white and a non-white, you are not attending a wedding, but a funeral. When the 23 chromosomes of the male sperm of a non-white unites with the 23 chromosomes of the egg of a white. It brings death to the 23 chromosomes of the egg of the white. And Clifton has a parenthetical remark that it's also the other way around. But I would state that the other way around, it is death in any case. He continues by saying that this process is now happening in white countries every few minutes. In the Bible, it is called a plague. In Numbers chapter 25, from verses 1 through 9. In that chapter, having intercourse with non-Israelites was considered the same as death. If you think the bombing of the twin trade towers in New York was terrible, consider the death being brought about by miscegenation. This should give you some idea of what kind of war we are in and who the players are. And of course that also dates the writing of this paper, which we have already discussed was probably in early to mid-2002. We've discussed that as we presented the first ten parts of it. Clifton says, now the key to understanding this war is found in Genesis 3.15. 
the anti-seed liners, Ted Whelan, Dave Barley, Stephen Jones, James Brueggemann, Jack Moore, and I could probably name a handful of others. The anti-seed liners, by denying the truth of that passage, are aiding and abetting Israel's worst enemy. Actually, the anti-seed liners are doing more damage than the Jews themselves. They call us two seed liners seed liners, so the only thing we can dub them is anti-seed liners. And let me say that being anti-seed liners, they are really anti-racists. They're no better than the Antifa. Even Ted Wieland, in his wretched naivety, calls himself a racialist in a lame attempt to avoid being dubbed a racist. Here Clifton has summarized, in a different way, exactly the ideas to which we always find resistance, even among so-called seedliners, that all bastards are rejected and it is miscegenation which causes death. Paul of Tarsus told us in Romans chapter 5, for until the law, and we're going to quote the same passage a little later in a different context, For until law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. But if sin was not imputed where there was no law, the anti-seedliners must explain why Adam and Eve were punished, and why the Adamic race was nearly eliminated from the face of the earth in punishment in the flood of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. If sin is not imputed because there is no law, why were these people punished? The truth is, both groups were punished because both had broken the one law which Yahweh God laid down in the garden. They both ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, meaning that they race-mixed with the corrupted fallen angels. They were punished for violating that one law, the only law Yahweh gave to man at that time. Or they could not have justly been punished at all. This proves that the sin of Genesis chapter 6 is the same sin of Genesis chapter 3 and vice versa. Proves it beyond doubt. It's the only way they could justly be punished because they broke that one law Yahweh gave to man at that time. And when we see the breaking of that one law described in Genesis chapter 6, we know what happened in Genesis chapter 3. This situation helps to demonstrate that the sin of the garden as well as the sin of the generation of Noah was indeed race mixing. Yahweh punished race mixers because Yahweh himself is a racist. Clifton continues under the subtitle my father, my father versus your father. And he says that John 8.38, chapter 8, verse 38, is one of the main supporting passages for Genesis 3.15. I should say for the seed liner interpretation of Genesis 3.15. I speak that which I have seen with my father. And you do that which you have seen with your father. Clifton says, you will first notice 
as properly applied by the translators. The one father is capitalized, and the other one isn't. From this, it should be quite evident that the father of the Messiah was not the same father as that of the so-called Jews. Therefore, Scripture is talking about two separate genetic family trees. You might argue this is speaking in a spiritual sense. Yet, take a look at the next verse where it says, Abraham is our father. That hardly sounds spiritual, does it? It is not spiritual here, nor is it spiritual in John 8.44, where the Messiah tells certain Judeans, later called Jews, who their father really was and is. Further, it is stated, my father and your father, indicating that our Savior had a different genetic father than did the so-called Jews. The Greek word for my is number 3450 in your Strong's Concordance in the Greek Dictionary. That's the word mu, while the word for your is 5216, and that's the word humon. Surely this language should be clear enough to understand the Pharisee and Sadducee alleged Jews were, for the most part, definitely not of the same lineage as our Messiah. Yet in spite of that evidence, this is what the anti-seedliners falsely maintain. Whelan and Weissman both made this assertion, as I have already shown you in other special notices, chiefly special notice number 10. What is it that we don't understand about the difference in the meanings of my and your? Jeffrey A. Weekly also says that it's all spiritual. And it must be admitted here that if we check many modern New Testament versions, one or even both of the pronouns are missing. That is because the ancient manuscripts are divided. The Christogenian New Testament will be amended at this verse to include both pronouns, John 8.38, where until now it has had only one. Reading both pronouns is consistent with the Codex Sinaiticus and the majority text, while the ancient papyri, P66 and P75, both of them very ancient, the 2nd, 3rd century BC, I'm sorry, AD, P66 I believe is estimated to date to around 200 AD, and P75, papyri 75, to the 3rd century AD and the Codex Vaticanus, they have neither of the pronouns. But those manuscripts do not agree on the reading of the passage. They have other differences among them. It seems likely that Jeffrey Weekly and Ted Wieland, like Jeffrey Weekly and Ted Wieland, the ancient copyists could not believe that the Jews had a different father than the Messiah, However, without the second pronoun, which is your, Yahweh God is made a hypocrite, telling the Messiah to do one thing and setting a contrary example for his people. The context of the subsequent verses, where Yahshua's opponents claim that they are children of Abraham and not born of fornication, 
tells us that the pronouns belong in the text and that the distinction which is being made is certainly valid. Once again, Clifton continues under the subtitle, If. In John verse 8, I'm sorry, in John 8 verse 39, it says, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. In verse 42, it says, If God were your father, you would love me. Both of them being the words of Christ to his opponents among the Judeans. Clifton says, questions. Did the so-called Jews ever do the works of Abraham? Did these same Jews ever love him? In order to understand what these passages mean, it will be necessary to qualify the Greek word if. Actually, there are two, two Greek words translated if in our English versions, and they are quite different. As a matter of fact, unless we investigate the true meanings of these words in the Greek, we cannot comprehend what is being said in the entire 8th chapter of John. And actually, I don't know how Clifton arrived at this conclusion, but we will, we will follow through with it. There is only one Greek word in the Greek in any of the manuscripts which we have available, and we will explain that shortly. For now, Clifton says, the one if is 1487. It's the word I. It's spelled E-I, and that means if in Greek. And the other word if is 1437. That's the word eon, E-A-N. And eon is really an, an elided form of two words. E-I and A-N, two particles, but E-A-N is a form of the word if. We usually translate it if perhaps. It's subjunctive. The one word if is 1487, I, and the other word if is 1437, E-on. In the Strong's Concordance, we are particularly interested in 1487 in this case. W.E. Vine does not deal with either of these words. Strong's explanations do little to make these understandable either. And let me say that most Bible dictionaries and Strong's concordance do very poorly with particles, with these little two and three letter words, right? They really do. With the common particles, they don't do well at all. After searching through several Greek reference books, I, meaning Clifton, found Dr. Spiros Zodiates, Zodiates, I should say, in his The Complete New Testament Word Study Dictionary, that it had the best general definitions for these two meanings. On pages 493 and 504, he says, this of these two Bible words rendered or translated as if and under 1487 I a conditional conjunctive meaning if as such it expresses a condition which is merely hypothetical and separate from all experience in indicating a mere subjective possibility and differing from eon number 1437 if 
which implies a condition which experience must determine, an objective possibility referring always to something future. And I, always, I almost always translate the word I, number 1487, as if, although in some contexts it is whether. Now Clifton quotes the definition for, for eon, number 1437. It differs from I in that I expresses a condition which is merely hypothetical, a subjective possibility. Eon implies a condition which experience must determine, an objective possibility, and thus refers always to something future, if perhaps something happens. That's why I usually translate this word as, if perhaps. But this is immaterial, since in all of the manuscripts from which the 27th edition of the Nestle Eland Novum Testamentum Grece is compiled, the word if is 1487, or I, in both cases, in John 8.38 and John 8.42. So while Clifton's comparison is not really valid for that reason, it does not matter, as the point which Clifton is making concerning the text itself is valid. Not having my Strong's Concordance with me as I prepared this program on the road, I cannot tell if Strong's induced Clifton to make this error of, of thinking that one of these occurrences of the word if came from the Greek word eon. Clifton continues to make his analogy of the two words, and he says, From this we can see in the Greek, for these two words, it is either a hypothetical if or a future if. For an example of a future if, one might say, if one will turn on the ignition, one might be able to start the engine. But if in our passages above, John 8.38 and, and 8.39 and 8.42, I'm sorry. But the if in our passages above is number 14.87, a hypothetical if in nature. Thus, these verses might read something like, verse 39 saying, If, hypothetically, you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And verse 42 saying, If, hypothetically, God or Yahweh were your father, you would love me. And here, of course, Clifton made the proper conclusion. And he continues by discussing the implications. Surely this very strongly suggests that the greater part of the Pharisees and Sadducees, those who opposed Christ, were not true children of Abraham of pure genetic seed. When faced with these statements of our Redeemer, the so-called Jews said in verse 41 of John 8, We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. And Clifton says that those so-called Jews would not have made such a statement if it had not been implied in the discourse by our Savior in John chapter 8. For fornication means the race mix, and in many contexts it does. Yes, they understood his words very well, and they knew what the word I, or if, had meant, even though the anti-seedliners don't seem to comprehend it today.
Not only did the Jews understand the impetus of Messiah's words, but they understood well the sarcasm in which they were said. There used to be a bumper sticker that read, If you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Messiah said, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. In other words, put up or shut up. How much more evidence is needed to convince the anti-Sealiners that those so-called Jews were not true, pure-blooded descendants of Abraham? I recognize that verse 37 says, I know that you are Abraham's seed, but it doesn't say pure seed and never in bondage confirms it in John 8.33. The Hebrew word Arab 61.54 means a mixture or mongrel race. The Esau Edomite Jews and the Arabs all have one thing in common. They are all mamzers or bastards. All mixed people are Arabs. And Clifton is absolutely right that in John chapter 8, Christ is denying that Yahweh God is the father of these Jews who opposed him. He's denying it very plainly by saying, if God were your father, or if Abraham were your father. He's denying that God is their father, so they must have another origin. The anti-seedliners have to find that origin, or they're just lying. As we have explained in a recent commentary on the prophet Malachi, in Malachi chapter 2, there is a dialogue between Yahweh and Israel. And after being rebuked, the people are portrayed in verse 10 as having asked, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now we would assert that this is indeed an allegorical prophecy of the very exchange between Yahshua Christ and the leaders of the people of Judea as it is recorded here in John chapter 8 where Yahweh answers the questions that the people posed. We see the answer which explains this discourse between Christ and his adversaries. And it says in the verse of Malachi which follows Judah has dealt treacherously and the And an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, who he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. Just as Judah had taken a Canaanite wife and caused subsequent problems for Israel, likewise the people of Judea allegorically married the Edomites in the second century before Christ marrying the daughter of a strange god, as Esau had married Canaanite women and his progeny became a bastard nation. So the life of Judah became a type or model for what had happened to Judea in the second century before Christ. And those events, those historical events, are recorded by Flavius Josephus, among others. Paul of Tarsus, Strabo of Cappadocia. Now Clifton continues under the subtitle of first he had to explain if to the anti-seedliners. Now he's explaining of 
And the anti-seed liners ignore him to this day. I wonder why. In John 8.47, Messiah tells these so-called Jews, He that is, genetically, of God, heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you are not, genetically, of God. And of course, Clifton added two occurrences of the word genetically in brackets. And he says, in special notice number one, the first of the series, we considered the word of, such as it is used in this verse. It is Strong's number, 1537, in the Greek. To refresh our memory, I will repeat it here. And of course, we will repeat it now, without the many notes we may have made presenting special notice number one. The complete word study dictionary of the New Testament by Dr. Spiros Zodiates devotes five pages to define and expound upon the word of as it appears in the Greek on pages 529 through 534. Obviously, I cannot quote this entire document here, but cite only that which is relevant to John 8.44. And quoting Spiro Zodiates, Clifton says, Number 1537, ek, a preposition governing the genitive, the genitive case of a noun or an adjective, primarily meaning out of, from, of, as spoken of such objects which were before another, of the origin or source of anything, the primary, direct, immediate source of persons, of the place, stock, family, condition, meaning out of which one is derived or to which he belongs, of the source of a person or thing, out of or from which anything proceeds is derived or to which it pertains. Quoting a different source, Clifton states, The New Testament Greek Study Aids by Walter Jerry Clark says on page 230 about the Greek word ek, out of, with the genitive by means of, out of. The Intermediate New Testament Greek by Richard A. Young on page 95 says the following about the Greek word ek. Ek often conveys special extensions, out of or from. For example, the prophet said that God would call his son out of Egypt, Matthew 2.15. Then Clifton goes on, from the Greek to English Interlinear by George Ricker Berry on page 31 of his Greek-English New Testament lexicon. We have this on ek. Ek, or before a vowel, ex, a preposition governing the genitive, from or out of. And, moving on again, Clifton says, The Thayer Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament on page 189 expresses ek this way, out of, as separation from, something with which there has been a close connection. John 8.47 has the same connotation as John 8.44. It means, and these are Clifton's words, it means a chip off the old block. When it says the so-called Jews are not of God, or Yahweh, it means it in a genetic way, 
but only those of us who are genetically of Yahweh can hear and comprehend his word. And of course we completely agree with Clifton here. There is no common usage in Greek that if one person were of another person, he is only a follower or pupil of the person. Cain was of the wicked one, but there is nothing in scripture which indicates that Cain had a devil for a teacher or a mentor. With the use of the word for father and the preposition ek, no other meaning could be assigned except the common meaning, where the usage signifies that the person is a genetic descendant of the, of the other person, the father. The anti-seedliners borrow invalid arguments from the universal Roman Catholic Church to dispute seedliners, and they have nothing better than old lies. Clifton continues with further scriptural evidence to support his assertions. And he says, John chapter 10 warns us of this very thing. In John 10 verses 26 and 27, Messiah says the same thing to the Jews, but puts it a little differently, where he says, But you believe me not, because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. He said that unto them in John chapter 8. But my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You may be wondering why I am so adamant concerning the two-seed-line doctrine. The reason I am so insistent is because, without properly identifying the enemy, the identity message is neutralized. It also tends to open the door for an enemy to worm his way into our midst. Once the enemy has established a beachhead among us, he can spread all kinds of misleading information and false doctrine, or leaven. And this is exactly how the Jews undermine Christianity in Europe, by infiltrating and playing at pretend Christian while setting themselves up as Bible experts and corrupting the interpretation of Scripture. And the anti-seedliners assist them in doing the same thing to modern Christian identity. This is why we despise and rail against clowns like Jeffrey Weekly, Stephen Jones, James Brueggemann, Dave Barley, and Ted Wieland the damage that these fools do by obscuring the racial message of the scripture cannot easily be reversed. British Israel sects even entertain demonic Jews such as Yer Davidi, who promotes an absolutely perverted version of the old British identity message. Identity Christians, if they are ever going to please their God, must do away with all of these clowns. And I'm putting it nicely. They must stop entertaining these lying bastards. Clifton continues. <laughs> the Jews who are, in, who are in the Herbert Armstrong camp. Herbert Armstrong had founded the old half-identity worldwide Church of God. The Jews who are in the Herbert Armstrong camp are a good example of this. It should be obvious that the Jews would have the most to gain from an anti-seedline message <clears throat> if the enemy can directly or indirectly influence those in Israel identity 
to the fraud that there is no seed of the serpent. <laughs> the Jew has them right where he wants them. Once the enemy has convinced identity-minded people there is no seed or children of the serpent, the no-devil doctrine invariably follows. Once this erroneous premise is established, the next step is usually to identify the devil as the flesh. While it is true that we do not, I'm sorry, while it is true that we do have a war with the flesh, this is not the same war as that which is being waged against the seed or children of the serpent. To identify the flesh as the satanic enemy is to grossly misdirect our energy. While the anti-seedline people are trying to analyze their own individual, personal fleshly problems, the real enemy is bulldozing along their agenda to destroy the white race. You can't get any more neutralized than that. Paul speaks of it as one that beats the air. And so far as I know, to this day there is a large portion of people who consider themselves Christian identity who actually do believe that the flesh is the adversary or Satan. While Paul of Tarsus described the personal struggle with our fleshly lusts and desires which each of us have, Yahweh created man in the flesh and it was good. There are many scriptures which can be used to prove that the flesh certainly cannot be the devil. The devil is in the flesh, but the flesh cannot be the devil. But the final understanding comes only once it is realized that there are people here on earth who cannot be converted, whom Christ and the apostles never expected to or attempted to convert, who are not of the race of Adam, and that they are collectively Satan, adversaries of Christ, and adversaries of the collective body of Christ. That realization the anti-seedliners refuse to make. Clifton continues, David said the following about the enemy in Psalm 139, of which I am sure he wasn't talking about his flesh. And David said, Do I not hate them, O Yahweh, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22. And Clifton says, Surely the devil and the flesh can't be the same thing. Yet this is what Ted R. Wheeland maintained on one of his series of ten audio cassette tapes, which are entitled Eve, Did She or Didn't She? He tried to claim that the two seeds of Genesis 3.15 were the seeds of the spirit against the seeds of the flesh. Ted R. Wheeland was saying, in effect, that the tree of knowledge was the law, and when Eve ate of it, it brought on death that the enmity between thy seed and her seed of Genesis 3.15 is the enmity between the flesh and the spirit. In other words, the flesh represents a seed line. 
In doing this, Ted R. Whelan was separating verse 15 from 14 as if it didn't exist. Yahweh was directing his dialogue to the serpent, not the flesh. Let's read the whole passage, Mr. Wyland, or Wieland, or Weenieland is probably better. And Yahweh said to the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. And upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and a woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now if one seed is the flesh, and the other seed is the spirit, then the woman doesn't have flesh, she only has spirit. Or the spirit belongs to the serpent, and not to the woman. That's just crazy. That's just childishly ridiculous. That's just a contrived lie to cover an agenda. Clifton says, Now, if it is a war between the spirit and the flesh, it would have to read as follows. So let's now read it as Ted R. Wyland would have us to read it. And the Lord God said to Eve's flesh, I won't say Yahweh in this case, I won't attribute Clifton's allegory and Wieland's ridiculous attitude to Yahweh. And the Lord God said to Eve's flesh, Because thou hast done this, thy flesh is cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. And thy flesh shall go upon its belly, and thus shall thy belly eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between the flesh of the woman and the spirit of the woman, and between the offspring of her flesh and the offspring of her spirit. And the offspring of her spirit shall bruise the head of the offspring of her flesh, and the offspring of her flesh will bruise the heel of the offspring of her spirit. The Gospel according to Ted R. Wyland. And of course that's a little different than we would have assigned it, but it's just as ludicrous, and it just as well may belong to Ted Wyland. Of course Clifton is being sarcastic, but he is absolutely correct that Genesis 3:14 and 15 would have to read in that very manner in order to lead us to come to the conclusions which Ted Wyland comes to. I don't think Wyland originated this, and if I am not mistaken, Sheldon Emery taught this long before Wyland, but in any event, others such as Goethe Koch and Dan Gentry had also gone down this path long ago. I wrote to Dan Gentry from prison once concerning this, and, like Ted Wyland and Dave Barley and others, he never answered my letter. A humble man can discuss scripture without being offended, but it is difficult for a fool to divest himself of his own stupidity. Ted Wyland is indeed such a fool. Clifton continues criticizing him under the subtitle, the Law Tree Hypothesis. And this one's really getting ridiculous. Clifton says, although Wyland does not say it in terms of a law tree, he highly suggests that this is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, which Eve partook of in the garden. I will quote some excerpts from his book by the same title as his ten 
audio cassette series on pages 40 through 44 of Eve Did She or Didn't She? And I am sure you will have to agree with my analysis of what, in essence, he is saying. And Clifton, quoting Ted Wyland, says, There are no scriptures that categorically tell us what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. Here we are going to interrupt Clifton's citation of Ted Wyland, because we do not want to do it later. We can know from Scripture what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. If we make a few inferences, these are not guesses, and inference is not a guess, and inference is a conclusion reached on a basis of evidence and reasoning, and we certainly have license to make them, or we would never be able to interpret an allegory. Scripture is full of allegories. The first inference is drawn from Genesis 3.22, that, that Yahweh was speaking to the angels of heaven when he said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. So angels know good and evil. The second inference, and I'm sorry, I have to type before I lose my thought. The second inference is drawn from the word know, which also means to have experience at something, rather than to simply be aware of something. And thirdly, and this isn't really an inference, thirdly we have the account in Revelation chapter 12, by which we know that the serpent of the Garden of Eden is explicitly connected to the devil and Satan and the group of fallen angels which followed after him in his rebellion from God. Since when they fell, neither was their place found any more in heaven. The fall of the angels must have happened sometime before the creation of Adam or the serpent in the garden would not yet have been there. Instead, he would still have been an angel in heaven. And the final inference is that when a third of the angels of heaven rebelled against Yahweh and fell from grace, they had come to know or experience evil, and they had already experienced good. By this scripture and these inferences, we can understand that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were the angels who left their first estate, the fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12, the angels that sinned. If the tree of knowledge of good and evil was the law, as Clifton is about to cite Whelan's claim and Stephen Jones's claim, in the end, there would be no law, as we only find the tree of life described in the last chapter of Revelation. But if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is an allegory for the fallen angels and the corruption of the creation of God, they are not found in the city of God because after the return of Christ, they are all cast into the lake of fire, and all the goat nations are cast in with them. But the children of Israel will still have the law, as Christ had informed them that it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. And we will discuss this further after we make Clifton's citation. 
and his response to it. Now for Clifton's citation from Ted Weiland's book. There are no scriptures that categorically tell us what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. And of course, I think that's wrong. Genesis 3.22 clearly reveals that the knowledge of good and evil resides not with some demon of darkness, but rather with our omniscient God, Yahweh. God's law itself is good because it reflects Yahweh's nature. And of course, Wyland's missing a big portion of the picture, which is why I think he's wrong. Consequently, Yahweh uses it as the vehicle through which the knowledge of good is commuted to man. The knowledge of evil is imparted by the means of the law as well. Furthermore, Genesis 3.6 describes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as being able to make one wise, being pleasant to the eyes and good for food. These qualities also describe the law of God. At this point, someone is likely to inquire, if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the law of God, would not that have made God's law evil because God did not want Adam and Eve to partake of it? And let me interject that in Shemitic Shemitic Idioms and Genesis chapter 3, a paper I had written some years ago. It is demonstrated that to make one wise, and fruit being pleasant to the eyes and good for food, were allegories describing sexual awakening. So we have two types of knowledge of good and evil. We have the knowledge of good and evil through God's law, and we have the knowledge of good and evil through experience at breaking God's law. So Ted Wheeland is leaving out half the picture. And we'll take this apart later. We'll get on with Clifton first. He continues to cite Ted Wyland. These qualities also describe the law of God. At this point, someone is likely to inquire if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the law of God. Would not that have made God's law evil because God did not want Adam and Eve to partake of it? There may be Christians, especially those who understand the vital goodness and importance of God's law for us today, who may still have difficulty reconciling in their minds that Yahweh would ban his law from Adam and Eve. Such Christians should consider that when God prohibited Adam and Eve from partaking of the tree of life, he never did that. That prohibition did not make the tree of life evil. God never forbid Adam and Eve from partaking of the tree of life. Wieland is misreading that passage at the end of Genesis chapter 3. So why would Yahweh want to keep Adam and Eve from his law? Wieland is reading something into the end of Genesis chapter 3, which is not there, because Yahweh never forbid Adam and Eve from partaking of the tree of life. Ted Wieland is a clown. So why would Yahweh want to keep Adam and Eve from his law? Perhaps God initially forbade Adam and Eve the knowledge of good and evil by way of his law, because he knew he would have to hold them accountable to it, and he knew the heartache and death that would ensue as a result. On the other hand, if the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was an unlawful partaking of God's law, then there is a connection between Adam and Eve's sin and all other sin. 
and we're going to take this apart, but first we're going to let Clifton take it apart from his perspective. Clifton responds to Whelan's rather ludicrous interpretation, and he says, Let's now sort out all this gibberish. That's exactly what it is. What are the consequences of what Wyland is saying? Wyland is inferring that Yahweh deliberately withheld his law from Adam and Eve so they wouldn't be condemned by their sin, that as long as they didn't know the law, they were innocent, that by partaking of the law, it brought about death. If Wyland is correct, and Clifton interjects, Yahweh forbid, and Adam and Eve had never partaken of the law tree, as Stephen E. Jones calls it, there's another clown, we could conceivably be living in innocence today, partaking of every kind of immorality, and it would not be considered by Yahweh as sin because we never ate of the so-called law tree. Wouldn't all the homosexuals of today love that situation? Clifton continues under the subtitle, Theory of Eating the Law Tree Not Original with Wyland. This idea is not original, original with Wyland. Stephen E. Jones, in his book, The Babylonian Connection, on pages 60 and 61, says this, in part, The tree of life, or grace, in parentheses, and the tree of knowledge, or law, in parentheses, both were planted in the same garden by God. They grew together. The law tree provided the righteous standard. The grace tree provided the means by which the standard could be met. First, they disobeyed God by eating from the law tree, and for that act they were made mortal. Then their eyes were opened to know both good and evil, and they recognized their mortality in contrast to God's immortality, because they had broken his law. They stood naked, or mortal, and without excuse, and Clifton puts in parentheses the interjection bull manure, and he's being a lot kinder than I would have been. Clifton responds and says, all this is absolutely preposterous, for there is positively no scriptural backing for such ideas as a law tree or a grace tree, or that the two seeds of Genesis 3.15 are representative of the seeds of the flesh and the seeds of the spirit. The term for seed in both the case of the woman and the serpent is 2233 Zerah, and it is the same word used in Genesis 13.16, where Abram is promised by the Almighty that his seed would become as the dust of the earth. If, in fact, Abraham had literal seed, so also must the serpent of Genesis 3.15 have literal seed. So where are the serpent's seed then? You talk about taking away, adding to, or twisting. This is the ultimate zenith of absurdity. It is obvious then that the woman, the serpent, and Abraham were all to have literal seed or children. Thus, to state that the woman was to have only seed, one seed, is also outrageously irrational, for it does not literally follow. She was to have a single variety, species, like kind of seed, the Seth, of which one seed was to bruise the head of the serpent. All this makes one wonder who will be next in line to parrot the same spurious argument. Stop and think. Without the seed of the serpent, Messiah's heel could not be bruised. And without the bruising of his heel, we have no redemption. 
maybe we should be a tad more careful how we interpret Genesis 3.15. Repeating, if there was not a literal genetic offspring of the serpent to bruise the heel of our Savior, then we have no redemption. It would appear the anti-seedliners have talked themselves into a corner from which there is no escape. And let me say that the concept of these two trees of Eden, representing a law tree and a grace tree, is so absurd that it is difficult to address in a few words. Stephen Jones just made this up, and I cannot imagine where in Scripture such an idea can be supported. Christ is the true vine, the root and the branch, and the word made flesh. The law is found in that word, but Christ is not in opposition to his own law. Paul of Tarsus makes Stephen Jones a liar, where he says in Romans chapter 5, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and sin by death, and so death passed upon all men, for all that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come, meaning Christ. Since Paul of Tarsus asserted that there was no law from Adam until Moses, then Adam and Eve could not have eaten from a law tree, and Stephen Jones is proven to be an idiot. Clifton continues and addresses other aspects of anti-seedliner chicanery under the subtitle, A Murderer from the Beginning. And before we start, let me say that there was one law which Adam gave, which Yahweh gave to Adam, and that was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the law, as we know it, did not exist. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil cannot be a law tree, because Paul said there was no law from Adam until Moses. So how could Adam and Eve have eaten from a law tree? Stephen Jones is an idiot. I love the opportunity to tell him that to his face. I don't think Yahweh will give it to me. I should be humble, I guess. Clifton continues under the subtitle, A Murderer from the Beginning. This phrase is found in John 8.44, and the anti-seedliners make the claim that it has a spiritual connotation. For the life of me, I don't know where they find a case of spiritual murder in the Bible. Then again, maybe they have a different Bible than mine. I wish they would quote book, chapter, and verse showing a single occurrence where someone was murdered spiritually. The word murderer in John 8.44 is Strong's number 443, Anthropokatanus, from Anthropos and Katanus, which is a slayer. It's a manslayer. In the Greek, it means a manslayer. It would seem as if it had spiritual, it would seem that if it had spiritual connotations, it would be defined as spirit slayer. And then it would be like Numa Katanos and not Anthropo Katanos. 
But try, as I may, I can find no place where this word has any such meaning. Many of the commentaries attempt to point out that this doesn't mean Cain, but the devil. Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore makes the same claim on page 23 of his Seed of Satan, literal or figurative. But thankfully, all commentaries do not agree on this. The Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary says this on page 733. Murder, the unlawful killing of one person by another, especially with premeditated malice. After the fall in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, it was not long before the first murder occurred, Genesis 4, 8, as Cain killed Abel his brother. Clifton says it would appear from this that the killing of Abel by Cain is the first recorded murder in the Bible. While it is true that Satan's beguiling of Eve brought on death, nowhere is it recorded as a murder, as implied in the meaning of this Greek word. The complete New Testament word study by Spirosodihates makes this observation on the Greek word anthropokatanus on page 179. Homicidal, used substantively, not imaginary, real rather than apparent, actual, an actual manslayer, one who commits homicide, citing John 8.44 and 1 John 3.15, to kill, to put to death. As you can see, Zoriates includes both John 8.44 and 1 John 3.15 in this definition, and if you will check 1 John 3.15, you will see that it is speaking of Cain, as recorded in 1 John 3.12, just three verses before it. Where do these anti-seed liners come up with all of this hocus-pocus about some kind of spiritual murder? Stephen E. Jones implied this in his book, The Babylonian Connection, on pages 70 and 71 where he said this, and Clifton quotes, remembering John's definition that he that commits sin is of the devil. Jesus was simply saying that the Pharisees were doing the devil's works. Since we have already seen that the devil could not have physically fathered Cain, nor any other human, the Pharisees were of the devil idiomatically, not genealogically. Let me say before we continue, because Clifton moves on to Ted Whelan's chicanery in in this aspect. Many men committed murder in the biblical records and they committed it just as treacherously as Cain killed his brother. But they were not considered to be of the devil. King David was not of the devil because he ensured a man's death while lusting after his wife. Moses was not of the devil for killing an Egyptian. The only way that Cain could have been a devil and of the devil was to have been a genealogical corruption, just like Judas Iscariot was called a devil, of the seed of the serpent. Clifton continues, Ted R. Wieland, in his Eve, Did She or Didn't She, words it a little more cleverly, when on page 90 he says and Clifton quotes. However, any well-versed Bible student knows that the Word of God is not always intended to be taken literally. 
Then, on page 84, he asks this question. However, it is a foregone conclusion that the word father used in John 8 has to be... I'm sorry, Whelan's asking a question. However, is it a foregone conclusion that the word father used in John 8 has to be understood in a literal physical sense? The seed liners declare, absolutely. To that, Clifton responds, and he says, Well, if the word murderer is literal, as we have just seen, then the word father would have to be literal also, would it not? Matthew 23, verses 29 through 35, cites the murdered victims, meaning the reference to all the prophets from Abel through Zacharias. Clifton says, Jeffrey A. Weekly in his The Satanic Sea Line, Its Doctrine and History, parrots the same contention in a question-and-answer discussion conducted solely by himself on page 24. Argument inferring that this is the argument of the two seed liners. John 8.44 says, Ye are of your father the devil. This shows that the devil is their physical father. And the answer by Jeffrey Weekly is wrong. This once again shows that the devil is their spiritual father, the one that they serve. Clifton goes on and says, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore, in his Seat of Satan, literal or figurative, on page 26, puts it this way. Figuratively, I believe, they are the special children of Satan, and that, as the Apostle Paul said, they please not God and are contrary to all men. But let us use care when we call them the literal, physical children of Satan, for we cannot prove this from the word. Clifton ends with the interjection, Ha! Clifton ends with a laugh directed at Jack Moore. The word proves throughout that these men were indeed physical children of Satan, which is what we would call the races of people descended from the corruption of the fallen angels. But the anti-seedliners are too proud, or too insolent to acknowledge it, opting instead to pervert the language wherever they can. Murderer doesn't mean murderer. Father doesn't mean father. Seed doesn't mean seed. They pervert every word of Scripture. The epistles of Jude and 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, are perhaps the best reputation against them. Infiltrators who crept in unawares and who are before of old ordained to condemnation cannot possibly be of the body of people of the people for whom the gospel is intended and therefore there must be a contrary body of people which is of a different nature if you're an infiltrator if you creep in unawares you can't belong to the body in the first place that contrary body is indeed the seed of the serpent but there can be no recognition without the acknowledgement that there are races of people here that could never be Christian simply because they are not of the race of Christ. Ted Wyland sends Bibles to niggers, and therefore he is void of any racial awareness whatsoever. Being so blinded, how could he ever see the truth of two seed mine? He can't. He has no racial awareness.
he rejects racial awareness. Ted Wheeler lost the wrong eye. That's all I can say. Thank you for listening. We'll be here tomorrow night. I think we might try an open lines program and take callers. We'll see how that works out. But I will line up as many callers as I can in advance. If you wish to participate in tomorrow night's program, please send me a Skype or an email. And make sure I'm in your Skype contacts. Or make sure I have your phone number. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening. And good night.